I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Last Night at School Committee. Ross Wilson and I are here to summarize for you what happened last night during Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. It's budget season, which usually provokes conversation and debate, and which this year we expected would include discussion about the impact of COVID-19, getting classes off of Zoom and back into buildings, finding kids who have been absent for extended periods or entirely this year, and creating solutions for the many problems that have been exacerbated by the crisis, including learning loss and physical and mental health issues. Ross, last night, the superintendent and school committee were talking about returning to school, helping kids and families recover from the crisis, and they were pitching the idea that Boston Public Schools needs to be reimagined. The conversation was anchored in an unveiling of the first draft of the fiscal year 2022 budget, the largest budget ever, even though the district has seen a decrease of 5,000 students since 2018. Ross, good morning. There's lots to talk about here. Good morning, Jill. Yes, it was great to hear about the budget um, for FY 2022 and get our first uh, glance at it. Um, also, uh, before we get into the budget, Jill, let's talk a little bit about um, what we heard before the budget presentation. Um, so last night's meeting covered a report from the superintendent about attendance. Um, there was a supportive vote on allowing the district flexibilities for graduation requirements for next year, as well as um, allowing flexibilities for advanced work class admissions, promotion, and grading policies. Um, as well as a spirited student testimony at public comment and a first look, of course, into the budget for next year. Uh, and to back up for a moment, the, the meeting began with Chair Oliver Davila providing clarification on what the committee is trying to do by setting new goals and guardrails. You'll remember um, that at the last meeting, the, uh, the chair proposed um, a few new goals as well as um, some places to fill in metrics, so baseline and, and ultimately what the outcomes they intended to have, but there was no real numbers or data there. Um, and this, the chair also explained how these goals will interoperate with the superintendent's approved strategic plan. Here's Chair Oliver Davila attempting to clarify the purpose of the new goals and guardrails. The committee has identified a set of priorities from the strategic plan that represent the community's vision for what students should know and be able to do. We call these our goals. And from the strategic plan, we selected a set of non-negotiable community values that must be honored while we pursue the goals. And we call these our guardrails. We do this not to replace the strategic plan, but to heighten our focus on it, increase transparency, and share accountability for student outcomes. We will spend time during upcoming meetings to review progress with the superintendent on the goals. So Jill, I think the chair was trying to clarify that what she meant in the last meeting by introducing these new goals and guardrails. And last week, she defined these goals with X's, meaning we think that they need to be filled in with real metrics. Um, but yet the system has not determined what those are yet. Yes, except for that, we should know where we're starting from, right? And so at least the first X should be a number. It should be quantified. I mean, we, we do know where we are, right? Well, I, I, we should, um, but this week we did not hear uh, from the school committee what they decided the X's will be. The chair said the group wants to focus on a number of things as a committee. So Jill, it'd be good for both these new goals and the strategic, the superintendent's strategic plan to have measurable objectives on which to measure success. 
And the school committee should then use these measures when considering presentations and asking questions and evaluating things like tonight's proposed budget. In fact, you would expect that the budget would be reflective of the goals um, right. and essentially saying, you know, if we're trying to achieve this in the coming year or years, um, these are the resources that will be allocated to achieving these goals. Right. So, so also last night, um, Chair Oliver Davila announced a new school committee member who will be joining at the next meeting. Uh, Ernani Diarujo will be the newest school committee member joining the February 23rd meeting. Ernani is uh, an attorney who lives in East Boston, currently works at the East Boston Health Center, and is a proud graduate of Boston Latin School. So we're looking forward to having a new member on the committee. Um, and then Jill, we moved into the superintendent's report. The superintendent provided her report um, with no mention of reopening of in-person learning with more than 7,000 students entering school um, today and tomorrow. Um, There's no mention of windows, no mention of PPE, um, and no mention of coronavirus testing. She did spend time talking about a company, a Panorama, and their attendance platform. Uh, it seems like sh what she's noting here is that 35% um, of teachers have, uh, in a few months ago, had logged in to this Panorama attendance platform. And currently, I, I believe as most recent, 50% of teachers are using this new attendance platform. Um, she noted some troubling data uh, from the platform where student average attendance actually ranges from 57 percent to 84 percent depending upon the grade level and so students at the lower grade levels and students at the high school grade level were closer to that 57 percent um, and students that are in our elementary schools were closer to the 84 percent um, attendance rate now jill this is significantly lower than the attendance data reported by bps on their dashboard um, which was reported at the last meeting which is closer to 90 percent um, so it, it's very confusing to me um, how we have such disparate um, data sources here. Uh, when the superintendent was asked by members of the committee um, about attendance uh, and if it would be this data would be incorporated into the dashboard, she noted that she needs to get more staff members to use Panorama. Um, and and so so it seems like the superintendent saying if we could just get more people to use Panorama, we'll have better attendance data. Um, in the superintendent's report, what was really kind of missing here was any mention of student learning uh, or getting more students back to in-person learning. We also didn't really hear anything about if families had changed their preference from moving from uh, fully remote to hybrid learning, given that students are beginning to return to school uh, through through March. Um, and you know, we would love to hear more from the superintendent and her team about how our teachers will respond to the needs of students who are both in-person and remote and teaching those students at the same time. Um, remember this, Jill, was the old hopscotch model, as they right. noted. Um, and you know, what are the strategies to deal with this attendance issue? This is quite alarming um, that we have so many students not attending school. Um, and I, I think we should all be concerned about, first and foremost, their social emotional needs, um, and then uh, clearly also about their academic performance. Right, but um, school committee was focused on the attendance data potentially because the data that she presented was so different than the data that appears on the dashboard publicly. Um, and so Vice Chair O'Neill asked this question. You know, a lot of our students are struggling with applying to college, thinking about college, they're not having their interactions beyond attendance. So 
How do we unpack that a little bit more, Superintendent? I'm sure it's a big concern of yours right now. And, how to, and particularly since our high school students under any schedule we have for reopening, our high school students are gonna be the last to, to get back to in-person. So how do we address what clearly is a very, very troubling set of statistics from nine through 12? And the superintendent responded to the vice chair, not with recommendations or plans for solving any of the issues that he brought up, but rather by saying that she doesn't understand the problem fully because her team isn't using the new technology system. Um, you know, it's been a whole year now and uh, almost a year. And, and, you know, that's just, it's just uh, heartbreaking to see that. Um, we can track um, number of times that students are um, seeing their guidance counselors and, and number of behavioral health sessions and social work sessions and different supports that have been given to kids. The trouble is, is that we have many of our schools who use different systems. And so we're trying to get it all on this one system so that we can better know where the effort is and where we can triage and intervene and develop plans for um, support. So that's what this panorama is for. And that's why I shared it with you today because it is really an important tool for us to be able to um, make these interventions and support plans that are gonna be necessary as we enter recovery. So Roz, I don't really understand this. The macro data shows that there's an issue with early learners and middle and high school learners. Um, and that to some degree, that is significantly more than in a normal year, they're absent from school. Shouldn't the system be addressing these issues now? Uh, isn't streamlining the data a separate issue? But why would the district be waiting for all the data to be in one place in order to address attendance issues, especially because we know how connected they are to learning loss? Right. So rather than rather than um, have a report on how many people are using a, a new platform, um, let's have a report on the strategies and success or failure rate of, of figuring out how to get more kids to be attending school. Um, you remember, Jill, a few meetings ago, we had a report uh, from the BPS team about um, number of students who were who were chronically absent and how to re-engage those students into school. It would be great to get back to that type of report. Um, about how we're re-engaging our students uh, in remote learning. Well, right, because that what that did was tee it up and say, here's the things we're doing. But you know, the question is really, okay, are they working? Do we need to do more? I, I mean, that those are the missing answers, I think. Yep, um, I agree, Jill. Um, so this is something to pay attention to uh, as we as we uh, tune into more meetings in the future. Um, Jill, the meeting moved on to report from the student uh, member, Mr. James, uh, he, he gave a report on the Boston Student Advisory Committees and their work, and, and really how the Boston Student Advisory Committee is pushing for more student voice on the committee. And in fact, they would like to do that through um, having the school committee uh, student rep have a voting uh, position on the school committee. Um, so then, Jill, we moved into public comment. We had 30 speakers last night in public comment. Um, a number of students testified how they would like to have more of a voice in decision making um, at the school committee level. They also expressed concern about school police and policies related to remote learning. Um, we heard from a number of high school students who just felt like their voices were not being heard by the school system. There was also public comment about the expansion of 
uh, Excellence for All, which is the program that is, uh, has replaced advanced work class in many schools, as well as the equitable distribution of resources. Um, you know, interestingly enough, Jill, there was actually no comments made about in-person uh, learning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Now, Jill, there was a compelling case uh, made for keeping and expanding advanced work class by a fourth grade student. Another idea is that some people are saying that they should remove AWC because why should only certain people get a better education? We can say that that is a good point, but why get rid of it when you could expand it? If more schools and classrooms had the AWC curriculum, then anyone could get into AWC with, without having to take a test. Everyone deserves to learn at a level that they feel comfortable with. So Jill, it was great to hear from the student. And, and in fact, uh, you know, it sounds like what the student is asking for is an expansion of excellence for all um, across the school system. Uh, so, you know, this is, you know, how do we have higher expectations, uh, a rigorous curriculum for all of our students um, so that we, we don't need to be assessing and sorting and um, our, our students in fourth grade, but rather we have the same um, high expectations and, and rigorous curriculum for all of our students. Right, and Ross, contrast that with this high school student who spoke last night about her experiences in BPS. Hello, my name is Ajene and I'm a BLA student in Dorchester. When it comes to student outreach, the district along with the school committee has completely failed to fully represent its constituents and provide the long denied space needed to voice their concerns and expectations. From lies to excuses, you all have played directly into the system that excludes non-whites from not just having a voice, but an impact at the table. Yet for some reason, you refuse to directly acknowledge and confront it as it would more than likely compromise your political allegiances. Shame on those of you who don't even pretend to hide it. You are all too comfortable with neglecting the duties that you swore to uphold. As a student that has been in this anti-Black, anti-Latina racist system of BPS for about 13 years, I would know. The fact that I had no knowledge of BSAC and other student bodies that were intended to represent me until this school year is a shame. It has become clear to me that the district purposefully makes this information inaccessible to us to keep us in a state of ignorance that allows you all to come and go from these meetings without much pushback from what I would say is the most important group of all. So two extremely different perspectives expressed last night at school committee um, by multiple people. One, seeing opportunity and saying to the adults, all you need to do is expand the great work that exists here in the Boston Public Schools. And the other, expressing that there are hurdles and roadblocks all the way through her education. Ross, isn't it important for school committee to be talking about the steps that they need to reconcile these two different experiences? Absolutely. This is this is like the tale of two students in Boston Public Schools. You know, one student saying, uh, "I'm having a great education, and we should expand it to all students," and another student um, at the end of her career in BPS saying, "I feel like I haven't been listened to um, or or treated well the entire time I've been in the school system." Um, so this is yeah, this is really concerning. It's really problematic, and this isn't the only. Um, you know, public testimony we heard last night from a high school student, we heard from a number of high school students who are who said they don't feel like their voices are heard in the school system. Um, so absolutely, we need to reconcile this and, and clearly the pandemic um, has has really raised up the inequities in our school system and, and we have to unite as a school system moving forward. So Jill, moving on from public comment, um, there was a one vote last night on these flexibilities for grading, graduation requirements, retention, and access to advanced work class. Um, with little discussion, the vote was passed. And so this means next year that much of the decision-making around how 
grading, graduation requirements and retention and um, promotion will be happening at the individual school level with, with school leaders making those decisions. So it'll be a one-year waiver on the policies on these issues. All right, Jill. So we moved in to the big part of the presentation last night, which was the um, superintendent team introduced the 2022 budget entitled Return, Recover, and Reimagine. We're proud to present this budget to you tonight. It represents our deeply held belief that every child in our school can and will succeed. Um, that if we invest in their teachers and build a supportive community around them, that they'll not only meet our expectations, they will exceed them. And when adults create the conditions in which children succeed, they absolutely do. There's no better time than now to give, you know, given the pandemic, uh, to make these historic investments in our children who have unfairly had to carry this large burden um, and you know, could just impact their entire life success if we don't get it right. So our commitment remains to ensure access to high quality schools in every neighborhood and an equitable learning experience for our students in every grade in every single school. We can accept nothing less for our children. So Jill, we heard that this is a historic investment. In fact, we've had a historic investment pretty much every year for the past decade at least, uh, where um, the budget is going up um, and that is not new. You know, the budget goes up pretty much every year. Um, let, let's hear a little bit more about how this budget is going to um, react to the needs of our students um, during this pandemic and after the pandemic is over. It will take all of us to ensure people to return to school for the richness of in-person learning and all of the support services so that we recover any learning loss and trauma of the pandemic from the years of structural and institutional racism, um, and also we reimagine what an authentic looks like because we're going back to what we were doing before. So folks, we've heard it here first. Uh, this budget will not only allow us to recover academically and social emotionally from COVID-19, but it also will solve for years of structural racism. Jill, I got to be honest here. Um, I didn't, I, I, looking through this budget, I don't see how it's going to do all that the superintendent promised uh, here. Um, and certainly it wasn't reflected in what we saw presented last night as part of this budget conversation. However, let's, let's back up a bit. The superintendent introduced the budget. Um, by essentially reviewing everything that's happened over the past year. And Jill, we're almost into one year of, um, of the pandemic and when we went remote to remote learning in March. Um, the superintendent noted that there's uh, 6,000 windows have been repaired. Uh, she spoke about everything from foggers to housing vouchers to packets of schoolwork being prepared for our students. But she never mentioned anything about student learning. There was also no discussion about what school will look like this fall. We don't know if it will be hybrid or if it will be remote or some combination thereof coming in the fall. We don't know for how long. We also don't know necessarily that our teachers have all the tools they need to teach students both in person and remotely at the same time, um, and which may be our reality for the majority of next year. We also don't know what measure will be necessary to return all students to in-person learning? What resources will be necessary to implement the appropriate tools and measures? 
None of that was reflected in this budget presentation last night. However, the BPS team did present a $1.3 billion budget. It includes adding 95 new social workers, 20 new custodians, and 80.5 bilingual family liaisons. It's clear that in adding these centralized positions, that BPS is moving away from a policy called weighted student funding, where funding follows each student. Ross, can you just explain that a little more specifically? How, how are they moving away from weighted student funding? Well, Jill, typically um, it, it, in budgeting, the, the each student, um, money follows each student. So each student is weighted, if you will. So they receive a weight if they have a disability, they receive extra funding. Or if they are an English language learner, they receive extra funding. Or if they're a student in high school who is um, academically behind, they'll receive additional funding. And the idea here is that uh, no matter where the student goes, the funding follows the student. And essentially schools then are allocated a budget based on the students who are enrolled in that school. And the school makes a determination about how to use those th 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 um, that money to serve the students in the school. So here they're moving away from weighted student funding. Where is the funding going to go then? To more funding to central office, less money to schools? It, 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 well, it, it, there's two, two pieces here. At first, it appears that the central office will be making decisions for schools about where their resources should go, right? So the school department here is making decisions that they want to increase social workers and family liaisons in schools. And so rather than providing that through weight and student funding, the central office is basically telling schools, here's the positions that you will be added to your budget for next year. So huh. in, in one way, decision-making is being moved away and also resources are being uh, determined centrally and then allocated to schools versus those resources just sent to the school for each school to determine how to use them. So it's, it's just interesting. I mean, does that work well, typically to take the decision-making away from principals who are running schools who have the most direct interaction with students and families and teachers and, and have it decided more centrally, it's a, it's a, it just seems difficult in such a big school district. Well, many, many people believe um, weight and student funding allowed those who were closest to students to make the decisions about how to allocate resources. Right. Um, also, weight and student funding was, uh, was created to have more equitable school-based budgets so that essentially schools would receive funding based on the needs of their students. So if you had a school with many students with more high needs, that that school will receive more funding from the school district to serve those students. Um, so weighted student funding was, um, was created um, out, of, uh, out of a desire for more equity across the school system. Yeah, okay, but we're moving away from that now and enrollment's down by eight and a half percent. So there's about 5,000 fewer students since 2018, which would mean, I think a smaller budget, but in this case, it's a larger budget, but there's some other factors at play here. Right, Jill. So um, let's let's play a quote about the risks here of of having a budget that increases, um, even though we have fewer students in the school system. As we evaluate how to use our resources, we're focused on those investments that will have an impact beyond a single year. We have an obligation to develop a sustainability plan for any new investments, particularly those paid for with federal relief funds. 
For each of the funding sources, I wanted to highlight the risks associated with new investments that are either misaligned to our vision or do not have a plan for sustainability. I first became budget director as the district was dealing with the last federal funding cliff, fueled by ARA and the federal government's Race to the Top program. Earlier this year, we worked with a team of students from Harvard to conduct research on how districts dealt with the loss of that federal funding um, almost a decade ago. They found that saving and creating jobs are inherently ongoing expenses, and that as ARA funds dried up before the economy fully recovered, districts across the US experienced delayed funding cliffs and were forced to make changes and cuts to their budget to get back within their total operating budgets. Districts which experienced the largest funding cliffs were those that front-loaded spending in the first year of the program and focused on job creation in the way that they spent their funds. The risk in adding new staff and using these funds with a lack of plan for how to fund it afterwards um, is one of the concerns that we're addressed with. And I would be negligent if I didn't mention that as we invest in supporting schools with declining enrollment, we need a long-term plan for how to address our overall capacity. It's important that we are still reducing capacity in our system that is no longer needed if we do not anticipate enrollment to bounce back to pre-COVID levels. This will allow us to focus our resources on supporting the students we continue to enroll rather than maintain capacity for students who are no longer here. So, so as we heard from CFO um, Nate Cooter, um, you know, essentially he's warning us, uh, warning the school system uh, against allocating funding from local and national governments um, that won't be sustained past three years. Uh, he, he's basically saying we got to be really careful about how we allocate these funds. And in fact, you know, not necessarily allocate them all to positions because those ultimately will have to go away. Right. And he also uh, was saying that even though most of our schools have seen a loss in students this year, um, we're going to make sure that the schools remain fully funded, where it would generally mean the schools would see budget cuts. Budget cuts. Right, Jill. So, so you know, in this case, I, I applaud the fact that the district is pushing for stability for the return to in-person learning, even though it's not clear if we're going to be back to full in-person learning next year. But the district is basically saying, you know, when students return, nothing will be different from when they left. Um, we'll have the same staff, the same programs. Uh, the district is poised to receive 123 million in aid from the federal government for relief and recovery from the impact of the coronavirus. Um, they're going to spend about 18.5 million on soft landings, meaning uh, making sure that no teacher is cut, no program is cut, despite the fact that we have significant enrollment reduction. Essentially, they're spending about 20% on all federal relief dollars to maintain the current structure in schools. Not necessarily reimagine it, Jill, but maintain the current structure and stability in schools when students right. return to in-person learning. And it's important to note here, um, they're spending about 4.5 million on tutoring and acceleration academies. Um, acceleration academies are typically, you know, summer, um, uh, summer tutoring or, or, or camps as well as February and April tutoring uh, during those vacation weeks. Um, this 4.5 million is approximately $90 per student on addressing learning loss. Um, we would expect that we would see a lot more money actually being spent on addressing learning loss here. Yeah, $90 per student, it, it feels like it doesn't even pay for one one-on-one -on -one tutoring session for each student. Right, 
Right. And Jill, I mean, I, I should note here um, that while Mr. Cruder is saying we got to be careful about not funding a bunch of new positions with this new influx of money, um, the district is funding and creating hundreds of new staffing positions. Right. Right. It was interesting, right? Because he basically teed up the budget by saying we have to be careful about cliffs that could be created by using federal dollars and city dollars that are only around for a couple of years. And they presented a budget that uses a lot of those dollars to pay for positions, which leaves a big question in a lot of people's minds about what happens in three years to those positions. Right. So, so this will be, um, these will be the hard decisions that this superintendent and her team uh, face uh, three years from now, when um, if, if enrollment continues to decline, uh, budget will continue to drop essentially. And all this, all this ex external money that has come into the system will go away. And the system will then be faced, the leadership will then be faced with, um, what do we do? We've got to cut hundreds of staff members um, and potentially uh, close schools, right? So, um, you know, we're okay this year for this coming year, um, but ultimately there are going to be hard decisions made. Jill, I would like to also just comment on a couple of, and we'll learn more about this. This is the first time we're seeing this budget, right? So we'll learn more about the budget in the coming weeks and months as we see more presentations on it. But it does appear that the district is increasing the budget of central office by about 5.4%, while school-based budgets are growing by only 2.6%. So it, it, there, there is a concerted effort here to um, spend more money on, on a larger central office. Um, also of note here is, we, we, we would be remiss if we didn't note it, is the transportation budget, which is the largest in the country, is going to increase by 5% um, next year. And then Jill, we heard a little bit more from CFO Cooter about the desire to um, uh, hold back $20 million of funds. Let's play a quote from Mr. Cooter. In addition to my earlier comments on inclusion in high schools, I wanna highlight our commitment to becoming an anti-racist district. This includes an investment in ethnic studies and are based on our desire to become a more culturally and linguistically sustaining district. But it also includes our efforts to create the conditions and structures to close achievement gaps. We will continue to challenge our team to address a number of issues related to exam school access, social justice and restorative justice practices, innovation and programming to attract, promote and retain educators of color and to constructively dis disrupt racist institutions and practices with equitable learning and development systems. To all of this, to do all of this work will require a high performing central office. And while we continue to evaluate efficiencies and the existing work portfolios of our existing staff, we are also considering investments to support the critical work and ensure that we are not expecting different results with the same resources. And finally, I wanna highlight the superintendent's proposal to foster innovation and engage with school communities. By leveraging the knowledge and expertise of those who are closest to students we serve, and committing to funding their innovations and collaboration, we believe will create the conditions for substantial, meaningful, and sustained change in our district. Well, that was a lot of words without many details. Um, it sounds like BPS is holding $20 million of funds to focus on building a strong central office to take on equity challenges without any, spec any specificity, no details there. 
Um, it also, they also noted something about working on identifying innovations from those working closest with our students. Um, I'm not sure what any of that meant. Well, I, Ross, I, I heard every buzzword that one can hear or say when talking about education. Um, everything that the district should be doing was on his list, but there are no plans, there are no strategies. There's a huge lump sum of money being allocated to central office, which I guess ensures that all of these things will happen. But I don't know that we really know what all of these things are because those were just big, you know, those were just words with no well, depth to them. Well, Jill, I, I would appreciate, um, it, you know, when, when comments are made at such a high level of inference, and we heard a number of them last night, very sort of very grandiose, high level, um, a high level of inference sort of goals and aspirations. It, it, this is a good opportunity for the school committee members to ask questions, you right. know, get more clarity, um, right. try to unpack what uh, the CFO and the superintendent are, are promising. Yeah. Um, so hopefully that will happen over the next number of months through these hearings. Um, and, and lastly, you know, we heard a little bit about sort of how things are changing under Superintendent Casillas's leadership. Let's play a quote. Superintendent Caselius came in here with a very different approach to budgeting and, uh, you know, really pushed our thinking around, like, you have weighted student funding, but at the end of the day, I want to see these things in a school. And started to increase the expectations of these resources need to be in a school and the funding mechanism needs to get us there or we need to change the, the, the underlying reason for that. And so, Jill, it, it, this is, it is clear that um, the school system is sort of moving away from the way they've, they've budgeted over the past number of years to a more centralized budgeting process, to a larger central office, a, uh, a desire to sort of centralize decision making. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how, how this plays out over, over time. Right. So we're left with a number of questions that we didn't hear asked last night. Some of these include, do teachers have what they need to teach simultaneously with more than 7,000 students with high needs returning to in-person learning today and tomorrow? How many families have changed their preference from uh, fully remote to hybrid in-person learning? Right. What are the strategies to deal with students' attendance? How will the system address their learning and social emotional needs? Um, also, the presented budget begins on July 1st. What will summer look like for our students? What will school look like in the fall? Will hybrid remote learning continue for how long? What if it does? What if it doesn't? What tools will be in place to support teaching students both in-person and remote? What measures are going to be necessary to return all students to in-person learning at some point? What resources will be necessary to implement the appropriate tools and measures? Right, and Jill, you know, will each student and staff member be tested for COVID-19 weekly? Will they utilize a state testing program um, in each respective school? And what is the plan for teacher vaccination? Right, and what are the outcomes of the interim exam school's admission policy this year? And lastly, in listening sessions that begin this week with school committee, will the chair provide real numbers instead of X's um, used in her stated goals and guardrails? And will these new goals and guardrails be used to guide the budget process? Right, so Ross, some of our listeners ask, how do we engage, how do we help? So here are some of our ideas. Uh, it's budget season. 
Most importantly, attend an upcoming budget hearing, ask questions and share your thoughts. Also, Boston City Council approves the school department's budget. It's the biggest part of the city's budget. Make sure that council members know what you think and where you have questions or where you would like to see changes in the budget. And lastly, attend an upcoming school committee listening session on the goals and ask questions. Demand clarity on how school committee will define measuring success and how the budget will reflect the goals the school committee outlines. That's right. So thank you for listening to last night at school committee. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your fellow friends, parents, and residents of Boston. We all have a stake in the future success of Boston students. Have a great day.